Come, Holy Spirit, use and overrule my words and all our thoughts so that your word alone may be spoken and your word alone heard through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, good morning. It's a great joy for my wife Meg and me to, to be with you all. We've really been looking forward to, to being back at Christ the King. We love our opportunities to, to be with you. Um, and again, I want publicly to thank God for the leadership of your pastor, David. David, you, you serve with such faithfulness, and I'm so grateful for your, your love of our Lord and your, your just zealous passion for his word and your commitment to, to disciple and care for God's people. You're doing a wonderful job. <laughs> and I'm just grateful for the, all the members of the vestry and your clergy and, and staff team and all of you who serve the Lord through this, through this wonderful church family. I bring you greetings from our Archbishop, uh, Archbishop Foley Beach of the Anglican Church in North America and his travels around the country and across the globe, he sends his, his warm greetings to you all. The one time Bishop of Reading in England tells a wonderful story on himself. It seems that one day he was visiting one of his clergy and in the clergyman's home when the vicar was called away on the telephone, leaving the bishop alone with the vicar's young daughter, at which point the little girl leaned over to him and said, can you help me understand something my, my daddy doesn't understand? And he said, well, I'll try. And she said, my daddy can't understand how you ever became a bishop. <laughs> Well, those with small children, beware. <laughs> well, you've been in a, in a series of sermons on the church. I've been able to listen to them with you online. And my assignment today is the church's leadership, and in particular, the ministry of a bishop. Now, even for people who've been raised in a tradition that has bishops, uh, the role of bishops can be pretty confusing, even a bit mysterious. What exactly is a bishop? Why do we have them? What does a bishop do? Well, our reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is a good place to start. The English Standard Version puts a heading over this section entitled, The Ministry of Apostles. Paul writes about himself and the other apostles, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. Historically, the church has described bishops as the successors of the apostles. Now, sometimes that's meant in the sense that those first apostles prayerfully identified spiritually mature leaders to be set apart by the laying on of hands in ordination, and those successors in turn laid hands on others who laid hands on others down through the centuries. And Anglicans take that historic succession seriously. But here Paul is speaking of apostles as stewards of the gospel itself. 
The apostles were entrusted with the word of God and they faithfully passed it on, both in the word of God written in the scriptures and in the word of God preached and taught. Paul's emphasizing the vital importance of this faithful handing on of the gospel to new leaders who will in turn faithfully pass it on to others. And that's why Paul in his letter to Titus chapter one emphasizes the bishop's role as a teacher of sound doctrine and as a defender of the faith. Paul says for a bishop or overseer in some translations, a bishop as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also able to rebuke those who contradict it. And that's why in the service of the consecration of a bishop, the bishop elect is asked this question. Are you ready with all faithful diligence to banish and drive away from the church all erroneous and strange doctrine contrary to God's word? And both privately and publicly to call upon others and encourage them to do the same. And the answer is that I am ready, the Lord being my helper. Some of us have seen all too painfully what happens when a bishop goes astray from the truth of the scriptures, when the guardian of the faith becomes indifferent to error, or worse, embracing it himself. The damage to the body of Christ can be severe and lasting. I take with utmost seriousness my responsibility to teach the word of God to uphold the truth, to correct those who may be in error. At our annual clergy day in September, I spent considerable time addressing a serious theological error being promulgated in some evangelical churches, thankfully not in ours, namely a rejection of the Old Testament and a rejection of the moral law that is revealed in the Old Testament. I consider it a sacred task to study the scriptures and be equipped more and more to teach the word of God rightly. But as Paul emphasized to Timothy, leaders must be of godly character as well, above reproach, not arrogant or quick-tempered or greedy, but upright, holy, and disciplined. All too often I see people become disillusioned as they are more intimately involved in the workings of the church and its leadership. It grieves me when I hear someone say, I once served on the vestry and I'm still a Christian. <laughs> Many years ago, some of us are old enough to remember, uh, Clairol Shampoo ran a famous series of ads that always showed a model with great hair coming toward the camera. And the tagline of each ad was always, the closer she gets, the better she looks. Well, that should be true of the church too, shouldn't it? The more one sees of the life of the church behind the scenes, 
the more one peers into the character of its leaders, the better the church should look. Is that true of us? Would our people be more encouraged, more inspired to holiness if they knew what we were really like, if they heard our unguarded conversations? And will unbelievers be more attracted to the gospel as they test the fruit of our lives? A bishop is a pastor to the pastors. I carry a shepherd's staff as a visible symbol of that role to care for the flock. My staff is a real shepherd's crook. It was made by a Christian shepherd, and at my insistence, it was used on sheep before it was given to me. And pastors, shepherds, bishops are to love the clergy. We're to call them on the phone and pray for them. We're to be there for them, to have their back, to encourage and guide and counsel. Meg and I consider it a privilege to spend time with our clergy and their families. Because our diocese stretches across several states and I get to visit each church usually just once a year, I have a different sort of relationship with the clergy than the pastor of a local congregation does who sees his people every week. But we've had veteran clergy of other denominations and traditions come to us wanting to be ordained in the Anglican church. And one thing they often say is, I want a bishop because I don't have a pastor and I know I need one. Bishops are servants of the people of God, not princes of the church, as some call high-ranking bishops. Just a few verses after our reading this morning, Paul describes the apostles as being at the end of the procession like condemned men dragged into the arena. Now the image that Paul is using is that of a triumphant general back from the battle with his troops behind him and then at the very back, the captured prisoners. A victorious Roman general rode into the stadium first in the place of honor and the condemned men were at the very end. Paul says, that the apostles are like those condemned men, the, one who's, the ones who were least of all, the ones at the back of the procession. And that's why as the bishop, I am last in the procession in and out of the church. It's not because that's supposed to be the place of highest honor, it's historically because it's the lowest place. Even though like many historic practices, the reason for it is sometimes lost but I know why I'm back there, and it means a great deal to me to remember that I am in the place of servant of all. Now, a bishop lays hands on disciples to be confirmed and received into the church, and on those to be ordained as deacons and priests and bishops. Now, the word confirmation is not in the Bible, but the practice of confirmation is in the Bible. A number of important words that we use are not in the Bible. The word Trinity, for example, is not in the Bible. But the doctrine, the truth of the Trinity certainly is. 
Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of Trinity is very clearly in the Bible. I've pointed out, I think, to some of you that the word grandfather is not in the Bible. But there are a lot of grandfathers in the Bible. So-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so. They just don't happen to use our word. And similarly, the word confirmation is not in the Bible, but the practice of confirmation is. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, Paul writes to Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. That was Timothy's confirmation. When Paul the apostle or bishop laid hands on Timothy to be filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit. Interestingly, this is not when Timothy was ordained as a priest or presbyter. That's in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, when Paul speaks to Timothy about the time the council of elders laid hands on him, which is exactly how elders or priests or presbyters are ordained and have been since biblical times. No, here in 2 Timothy, Paul describes how he as the apostle or bishop laid hands on Timothy after he had come to personal commitment to Christ. And we know from Acts chapter 16 that Timothy was already a disciple when he first met Paul. But even though Paul was already a committed believer, it was important that the apostle lay hands on him for the strengthening of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we call confirmation. Now my bishop's cross has a dove on it which is the symbol of the Holy Spirit. And on that dove is a small stone. It's an amethyst. Many bishops have an amethyst on their ring. You probably don't know why bishops wear an amethyst, but it's because amethyst is Greek for not drunk, which as you might recall is what the Apostle Peter said at the start of the very first Christian sermon about the apostles being filled with the Holy Spirit. He said, these men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. In other words, the amethyst is a reminder that bishops are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so are you. Confirmation by the bishop is a very biblical thing. It's what Christians have been doing for 2,000 years. Hands are laid on and the gospel faithfully passed on all the way from the apostles until today. It's an amazing ancient pattern. And it's an incredible privilege for me as your bishop to get to pray for some of you today. The bishop also ordains clergy joining with the other presbyters in ordaining a presbyter, joining with the other bishops in ordaining a bishop. It's a joy to be here for Robbie's ordinations as a deacon and then as a priest, and I look forward to Peter's ordinations as well. See, we clergy do not ordain ourselves. We are accountable and submitted to those in authority over us. To exercise authority rightly, one must be under authority rightly. Now the New Testament word for bishop is episkopos, which means overseer. A bishop gives oversight to the churches and clergy of his diocese. It is not my job to run each church 
or micromanage or second guess the clergy in their leadership. Now I'll be honest, a lot of things in our churches are not done the way that I would do them if I were pastoring that congregation. But that's as it should be. Our churches each have their own style and our clergy lead in ways that are appropriate to their own gifting and personality. My role is to guide and encourage. A bishop is an overseer. And I've come to learn that one of the most important things a bishop can discover is what he should oversee, and if you get my drift, what he should overlook. Now as an overseer, I'm called to hold up God's vision for our life and mission together. Not my vision, God's vision. And to do that, I know I must lead out of prayer and intimacy with God. The prophet Jeremiah had some very strong words about false prophets and godly ones, true shepherds and false ones. Prophet Jeremiah chapter 23 contains some words of encouragement and some words of caution about us who are called to lead God's people. Jeremiah said, this is what the Lord Almighty says, do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. But which of them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see or to hear his word? Who has listened and heard his word? I did not send these prophets, yet they have run with their message. I did not speak to them, yet they have prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to my people. Unrighteous leaders are those who set forth a vision of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. Godly leaders are those who, as Jeremiah puts it, stand in the counsel of the Lord, who spend time in God's presence in prayer, seeking to hear his voice and know his will. The prophet Ezekiel echoed Jeremiah but said, no, it's even worse than that. These false leaders speak words and visions out of their own minds and then they have the audacity to expect God to do what they made up. Ezekiel chapter 13, verse six. Their visions are false, their divinations a lie, even though the Lord has not sent them. They say the Lord declares and expect him to fulfill their words. This is what the sovereign Lord says, because of your false words and lying visions, I am against you, declares the sovereign Lord. Ungodly leaders expect God to fulfill their vision. How easy it is for us to be just like that, coming up with our own vision, our own bright ideas, our own plans, and expecting God to bless them. I know that my personality is such that I can come up with 12 bright ideas before breakfast. But a diocese is not called to do what the bishop thinks up. We must never give in to the temptation to lead out of our own imagination. A true and godly leader is one who spends time in the Lord's presence to see the Lord's vision, to hear the Lord's word. A bishop exercises discipline over the clergy. 
Sadly, there are instances when the clergy go astray, when they act out of their own wounds and brokenness, abusing their power, falling into immorality. In such a situation, and I've experienced a few, the bishop is to safeguard the flock of Christ by disciplining and perhaps removing a member of the clergy, but also providing counsel and healing for the pastor and his family. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 about all that he'd suffered for the gospel, the labor and imprisonments and beatings and shipwrecks. But then he says so poignantly, besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. A bishop in our context will not likely experience the sort of attacks that the Apostle Paul suffered, but a true shepherd will share in that sometimes crushing burden of concern for the churches and their leaders and their people. As I was preparing for my consecration as a bishop, the Lord gave me a personal direction, a personal spiritual discipline, if you will, that whenever I put on this bishop's cross, I should privately recite one of the verses of scripture about the cross. Verses like, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. If anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. If I resolve to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. A bishop symbolizes our connection to the wider church, not just to the fellowship of our diocese, but to the universal church. We're members not simply of a local congregation, but as David emphasized in his sermon a few weeks ago, we're members of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And just as Christ the King powerfully demonstrates in our personal times of need that we're not alone, so this whole congregation is not alone either. We're part of that church universal. And the bishop in some sense embodies that wider fellowship. For us. Robbie and my wife Meg and I were privileged to participate in the Global Anglican Future Conference in Jerusalem in June, a huge gathering that brought together leaders of biblically faithful Anglicanism from around the world. Our own Archbishop Foley Beach was named chairman of the Council of Primates of this Global Anglican Fellowship, and an extraordinary leader and dear friend Archbishop Ben Kwashi of Nigeria was named as General Secretary of our movement. Archbishop Ben is one of my heroes as a bishop, a model of what it means to take up the cross and follow Jesus. Archbishop Ben serves in northern Nigeria, and he oversees all of the Church of Nigeria in the northeastern quarter of that country. So if you've read about the attacks by Boko Haram and the kidnapping of the schoolgirls, those have occurred in Archbishop Ben's area. Ben and his wife Gloria are such examples to us as they've stood so courageously, so faithfully under the pressure of militant, uh, violent Islam. 
few years ago, over 40 armed men came to their house to kill Ben. As it happened, Ben had been in London for a missions conference and he had had to delay his return to Nigeria by one day. And so when they came to his house, they did not find him. But they did find his wife, Gloria, and they beat his son, and as in Ben's words, they did unspeakable things to Gloria. They beat her, paraded her naked through the streets, and left her half dead and totally blind. Through the mercy of God, she recovered. But exactly one year later, they came back again. This time, they took Ben out to kill him outside the home, but then when they reached the end of their yard, they changed their mind and returned to kill him in the house. Ben asked if he might pray before they killed him, and he knelt before the Lord. And a few minutes later, the next thing he knew, his son was there and said, Daddy, they've gone. It's like the book of Acts. God just delivered them. But while the Quashis were in Jerusalem for our conference this June, uh, armed men came and attacked a third time. They killed their friend and neighbor who was looking after their home, and they stole all of their cows. Now, their cows are their means of support for them and for their enormous family because Ben and Gloria have adopted more than 200 orphans into their family and taken them into their home. Not simply providing care, but a family name. They are members of their family. They are Quashis. Many of them have, have grown up and moved on, but over 40 uh, children are currently living in their home. And their cows were their means of support of their family. Yet Ben and Gloria persevere with courage and with radiant joy. Uh, last year, uh, Jennifer and uh, Julie Kohler and Suzanne McGeehy and my wife Meg served on a mission team with Gloria, uh, leading a retreat for the wives of the bishops of the Anglican Church of Kenya. And as they can testify by God's grace and healing, Gloria is a radiantly joyful woman who loves the Lord and loves to laugh. And Archbishop Ben has a smile a mile wide and a zeal for Jesus that is infectious. He is resolute for the cause of Christ. And as he puts it, I have colleagues who have been slaughtered for the gospel, roasted in their churches. Why I am alive, I don't know. But one thing I do know, until that day when I die, I have a gospel to proclaim, I have a gospel worth living for, and I have a gospel worth dying for. I praise God for giving us bishops like Ben. As you and I serve together in God's church, may we too seek to live lives worthy of the gospel for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.